queer folks. It was folks with queer kids. It was allies. And more people showed up at that parade this year than ever had because they weren't going to be bullied. You know, they're not going to be stopped. We did anybody to come back across that picket line. We were for real. We was going to do what they had to do. Because uh, we were sick and tired of being sick and tired. I know from personal experience it can sometimes be very difficult to uh, put a mirror in front of someone and say, look, this is, this is you. And This statue of Zelda, a real woman, rather than an allegorical representation of one, is one of only 11 statues of real women in Melbourne, competing with 582 of the male variety. There's like 50 plus open sewers discharging raw sewage into the Detroit River by the turn of 20th century, and that's also where the city's getting its drinking water, right? You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. I'm Chris Garlock. On today's show, we wrap up Pride Month with a special episode of Union Talk, the podcast from the American Federation of Teachers. As AFT President Randy Weingarten talks with Brian Bond, the executive director of PFLAG, about the history and power of the LGBTQIA community and the current fight against hateful policies impacting students, teachers, and families. Then, episode four of the I Am Story podcast looks at the impact of the 1968 sanitation workers' strike on the lives of the people involved and the challenges workers have faced in the years since. On the Union Dues podcast, which comes to us from the United Kingdom, we step into the fray of sexual harassment. Guided by Andrea Oates, author of an excellent new publication on sexual harassment, the podcast drills down into questions of definitions, legal remedies, and effective union campaigns on awareness, prevention, reporting, monitoring, and, of course, representation. Next stop, Australia, as the Stick Together podcast goes outside Victoria Trades Hall in Melbourne, where a very large crowd gathered late last month for the unveiling of a statue of workers' hero Zelda DiPrano, a fighter for women's equality and a mighty union woman. In our final segment, Dr. Josiah Rector tells the Tales from the Ruther Library podcast about how more than a century of unregulated industrial capitalism and racist practices in housing and employment in Detroit have created pollution and environmental disasters disproportionately affecting the poor, the working class, and particularly African Americans. That's all ahead on this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. Welcome to Union Talk. I'm Randy Weingarten. So we have a very special episode of Union Talk today. And this is as we end Pride Month, we're talking to one of the people who has been a mentor and a friend to me 
for a very long time. Brian, I'm not going to tell anybody how long you and I have known each other, um, but Brian is the head of PFLAG, um, which was um, the first group of parents supporting their gay kids that was created in 1973, one of the first LGBT groups created in America. So Brian, thank you for being with me today and welcome. I'm excited to be here. Uh, uh, it's truly an honor to be with you today. Thank you. I'd love if you just talk to us about, you know, PFLAG today and again, you know, why you, you know, why you assume the mantle of the head of PFLAG right now, which is a really, really important job. Sure. Uh, you know, it's funny. I started four years ago and I literally campaigned to get the job. We are celebrating, as, as um, you said, our 50th anniversary uh, and our work has really not changed. It's centered around creating a caring, just and affirming world for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We have about 400 chapters now across the country. Uh, our pillars are around education, support and advocacy. Uh, we were there as part of the caregivers and advocates during the AIDS epidemic. You know, we were the first one, before there were GSAs, PFLAG was there. Uh, and then now we're here in this fight today and I couldn't be more excited. Well, excited is probably the wrong word. I couldn't feel more humbled and honored to be here at this moment, uh, uh, to be working with some of the most amazing parents, family members and LGBTQ plus people across the country. I went to the, uh, the Pride celebration in Colorado Springs. And now that had just been a few months after the shooting uh, at Club Q. And it's, you, while not the same numbers as you were describing around the New York parade, it was the same level of community that was there. It was queer folks, it was folks with queer kids, it was allies. And more people showed up at that parade this year than ever had because they weren't gonna be bullied. You know, they're not going to be stopped. Yeah, it's tough out there, but um, people want to be there. They want to stand up and glad with 1A, uh, <laughs> with a toolkit, if you will, called safeschoolsforall.org, uh, which we're trying to make sure educators, uh, or excuse me, that the parents are are prepared to handle the, the attacks that are coming forth. Uh, we are actively training parents uh, to be able to utilize their voices uh, uh, when it comes to speaking out, whether it be a school board, city council, state legislature, whatever it is. Uh, um, we, as I think you know, we sued the governor of Texas uh, for uh, their attempt to accuse parents with trans kids of child abuse uh, for trying to provide life-saving gender-affirming care for their kids. Uh, and I'm really kind of excited this month uh, and I alluded to this when we were talking the other day, uh, we just signed an MOU with the state of Florida, which as you know, has just been ground zero along with Texas. And 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 I don't wanna leave out the Alabamas, the Mississippis, the Oklahomas, the Missouris, all under tech, but Texas and Florida especially have unique places in this uh, because of their, their governors. Uh, we signed an MOU uh, with Quali Florida uh, where we will, first time ever, we will be, um, we will be paying for a staffer embedded in their school's program right. to literally be that um, interface between 
what's going on in school boards, city councils, and the state legislature, and PFLAG chapters. Uh, it's kind of catch and grab, uh, uh, get parents that need help into the chapters, but at the same time, pull uh, those parents out that are ready to speak out and give them the tools to be the voice. And one of the things I I'm, want to uh, work with AFT long-term is, you know, we can't do that in every state. So how do we do a model that allows for the, the continued collaboration for us to be there for educators that are, you know, that should not be having to deal with this alone. You know, right. we, we have skin in the game. Our kids are in those schools. How do we better support uh, uh, your members and educators that, that want to do the right thing? This really is, from my perspective, about saving lives. That's why I'm here at PFLAG. That's why you do what you do. And I honestly believe that's why a lot of your members do the work they do. Yes. Is, is these kids, keeping them safe, letting them thrive, letting them grow, and fighting back against this stuff. We will We will win. It, it's just we're kind of getting kicked a little bit right now, but we will ultimately win this. And I do believe that in my heart. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Union Talk. Remember to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast and tune in every other week for a new episode. Thank you. Be safe and be well. We did anybody to come back across that picket line. We was for real. We was going to do what they had to do. Because uh, we were sick and tired of being sick and tired. The Memphis Sanitation Workers' Strike of 1968 lasted two months. But its impact would be felt for many years. I'm Lee Saunders, the president of the American Federation of State county, and municipal employees. In this episode of the I Am Story podcast, we look at the impact the strike had on the lives of the people involved and the challenges workers have faced in the years since. The agreement the sanitation workers reached with the city in 68 gave the workers a seat at the table and secured a variety of new benefits, including a 15 cent an hour raise didn't pull them out of poverty. But over time, with our union pushing, their salaries began to rise. For Cleo Smith, who was one of the strikers, life slowly got better. Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. We was able to live, you know, comfortable. My rent went up, which I didn't mind. Bought my first uh, brand new car in 1978. Bought my first brand new car, <laughs> a Chevrolet. I'm a Chevrolet person. Matter of fact, I got a Chevrolet sitting out there. Uh, moved out the project, moved into a home in Westwood. Uh, taught my children how to go to school, get an education. All of them come out of school, uh, got their own homes. So one of them is a, a school teacher. Uh, one of my daughters, she's called uh, in-home, I guess, cook. I told her, I said, yeah, you need to just open you a business. God, I mean, they be at her house and she got a license, you know. 
And on, like on Sunday, they'd be lined up from Yoviana to the building, coming to pick up the food. Uh, one of my other sons, he works at Corcus uh, Barbecue. He got his own home, lived down the streets out there from where I live at. So if you're ever in Memphis, go to Corcus Barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> Two years ago, a producer friend and myself interviewed sanitation workers that were still alive and their families, which was an, an incredible uh, experience for me personally. Richard Copley, the young photographer who was caught up in the strike's most embattled moments, has continued to follow the story of the strikers. To see that the, these families of these garbage men, as they were called, would turn up and be business people, restaurateurs, ministers, successful, successful families. So that, uh, that to me was very, uh, very important. Thank you to sanitation workers everywhere. Your work is important and you deserve respect gratitude, and the right to a union. If you want to learn more about how being in a union can make a difference in your life, visit www.askme.org difference. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Union Jews podcast. Still, the UK's only all things union show, carefully curated for your digital, downloadable listening pleasure. I'm Simon Sapper, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to this special edition of the podcast. Well, I say pleasure, but the subject matter is anything but. Sexual harassment is in the news, and that in itself is bad news. Bad news that this is a scourge that shows no sign of disappearing soon. Bad news because it is both reflective and fueling of misogyny in our society. Bad news because part of the picture is the failure of some trade unions to live their values, becoming contaminated with sexual harassment rather than a progressive bulwark against it. Guided by Andrea Oates, author of an excellent new LRD publication on sexual harassment, we drill down into questions of definitions, prevalence, legal remedies, effective union campaigns on awareness, prevention, reporting, monitoring, and, of course, representation. Andrea, perhaps the, the, the place to start is, is to get a common understanding about what sexual harassment is and how widespread it is. Yeah, so, I mean, just in terms of how widespread sexual harassment is, you know, there's been lots of surveys by trade union organisations and others that sort of suggest that it's, you know, really prevalent. And there was a, I think it was a Women in Equalities Committee did a, a survey a few years ago, I think in 2018. So it was a cross-party parliamentary Women in Equalities Committee inquiry, and they found that unwanted sexual comments, touching, groping, and assault are seen as an everyday occurrence and part of the culture in many workplaces. You know, which is sort of quite shocking, really. 
And the TUC did a, a kind of big landmark piece of research in 2016 where they found that I think it was more than half of, of um, women had experienced sexual harassment at, at work. And recently, in May, a TUC poll of more than a thousand women found that three in five women say they've, been, they've experienced harassment at work, rising to almost two in three women aged 25 to 34. So, in terms of kind of the definition of sexual harassment. The NASUW Team Teaching Union, they, they've got some on, online advice that says if a person's behaviour is unwanted and is of a sexual nature, then it's sexual harassment. And it doesn't matter if, if other colleagues in the workplace find the person's behaviour acceptable or whether it's um, one-off or repeated behaviour. And, and they say, if it makes you feel intimidated, uncomfortable or degraded, then it's harassment. Andrea, in your research, found... Uh, examples of best practice or devices that unions have come up with to avoid that situation arising or to deal with it when it does? I'm not sure about examples of where they resolve that, but I think the advice is that unions should have a, a clear policy in place to deal with that. And sometimes that is where, you know, perhaps a regional officer will get involved rather than, you know, two reps in the, in the same workplace, you know, representing different members. Yeah, I mean, the, the, as you say, the, the the obvious solution is to have a clear policy about about escalation routes up from the point of the incident to make sure that there is no conflict generated by one rep having to having to represent two people on either side of an argument. Yeah, yeah. So you wouldn't have the same. Yeah, so you don't have separate reps, and in some cases, regional officer would would get involved. And I think probably key thing that came out of of just looking at the you know union and other guidance around that is just in terms of it, is it you know it's a serious allegation just making sure that it's a it's a fair process one of the points is about you know the investigators should always keep an open mind and not and, and look just not just for evidence pointing to guilt but also innocence and you know, because of the career-threatening nature of formal allegations of sexual harassment, the standard of investigation should be very high. So I think, it, you know, and, and reps being involved in making sure that, you know, there's kind of due process and making sure it's fair process, you know, that the person whose the allegations have been made against, you know, goes through a, a fair process, but is is kind of supported. And, you know, in in, in some situations, reps will have a role in kind of, you know, getting them to change their behaviour and it, I suppose highlighting unacceptable behaviour and, and the, you know, the need for change, making sure that people recognise why that behaviour is not acceptable. Indeed, and sometimes, I mean, I know from personal experience, it can sometimes be very difficult to uh, put a mirror in front of someone and say, look, this is, this is you. I hope you've enjoyed what you've heard, even if some of it has been rather challenging and will join us for future editions of Union Jews and check out our sister show, Union Days, wherever you get your podcasts from. Until then, this is me, Simon Sapper, saying thanks for listening and bye for now. Annie McLaughlin here for Stick Together, a half hour of workers' stories, union news and social justice issues. We come to you from 3CR on the unceded lands of the Kulin Nation with respect, 
to their elders, past, present and emerging. We are coming to you on your community radio station, on the Community Radio Network, with the financial support of the Community Radio Federation. Outside Victoria Trades Hall on Tuesday the 29th of May, a very large crowd of people gathered for the unveiling of the workers' hero, Zelda Deprano. The Rosa Parks of Women's Equality in Australia, the woman who refused to pay a full tram fare, offering only 75% because that's how much less women were paid in Australia's 60s and 70s. When Zelda and a core group of union women chained themselves to the Arbitration Commission demanding change. This statue of Zelda, a real woman, rather than an allegorical representation of one, is one of only 11 statues of real women in Melbourne, competing with 582 of the male variety. Some way to go in the harmonising of the historical record. Today we are here to talk about Zelda Deprano. This Zelda. Zelda who was forced to leave school at 14 because her family needed her to earn some money who, as soon as she started working, saw that inequality between men and women was rife, who spoke up and got fired for it time after time. Zelda, who was an activist, who called out sexism wherever she saw it, including in our trade union movement. But today's not just about Zelda the individual, but also as part of a collective. Because Zelda was a feminist. She was a part of a movement driven by many women for the collective benefit of all women. A movement she joined, progressed, and then passed on to a new generation. Anne Zelda was a trade unionist. While she was one woman, she never acted alone. Even on the day that she chained herself to the Commonwealth Arbitration Building, there were other union union women with her, supporting her. So, let's hear that story. In 1969, Zelda started working at the Meat Workers Union. Back then, there were three full-time women trade union officials in Victoria. And like her union sisters, she took a keen interest in the union equal pay test case. She would go down to the Arbitration Commission to watch as a full bench made up entirely of men listened to arguments made by men for and against equal pay for women. She described it like this. It was humiliating to have to sit there and not say anything about our own worth. I found the need to sit there silent, almost beyond my control, and was incensed with the entire setup. In the end, that first test case achieved equal pay for equal work, which sounds terrific, until you realise that Australia had, and still has, one of the most gender-segregated workforces in the world meaning that only 18% of working women benefited. The union women who had been following the case were pissed. And so they did what any self-respecting activists would do. They put that anger into action. On the 21st of October 1969, Zelda chained herself to the Commonwealth Building while her union sisters carried signs, paraded and chanted. And then Zelda and two AEU comrades, Alva Geeky, who's with us here today, and Thelma Solomon went on to chain themselves to other buildings. They got together with other women and formed the Women's Action Committee, specifically to protest. Things like refusing to pay full fare on public transport, because after all, 
If women only earned 75% of what men earned, they should only have to pay 75% of the fare. And they went on pub crawls as protests. Because back then, women weren't allowed in the front bar. They had to go to the ladies' lounge where the drinks were more expensive. Zelda and her sisters weren't having that. They pushed their way into the front bar. And so they broke down barriers for women, including barriers to equal pay. In 1972, the Arbitration Commission heard another case, and this time they decided that equal pay meant equal pay for equal work and work of equal value, which meant all women workers could benefit. A proper win, worth celebrating with a drink in the front bar of the nearest pub. That's it for Stick Together this week. If you want to catch up with the program, the podcast is available at 3cr.org.au or at your favourite podcast site. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labour History in Two. On this day in labour history, the year was 1928. That was the day the state of Alabama outlawed the convict lease system that had been in practice for decades. Slave masters throughout the South had routinely loaned out enslaved people before slavery was finally abolished. The convict lease system continued this practice as the South worked to rebuild in a rush of rapid industrial growth after the Civil War. African Americans found themselves increasingly subject to sweeps by local and state authorities that coincided with harvest time or when labor agents arrived looking to man the coal mines. Many were convicted on trumped-up charges and shipped off to prison. Once there, they were leased to private industries and dispatched mostly to coal mines near Birmingham. By 1890, the state profited $164,000 a year. By 1912, prison mining brought in over a million dollars in state revenues. In the PBS documentary, Slavery by Another Name, Douglas Blackman and and other scholars note that prisoners could be driven in a way that earlier enslaved workers and free labor could not. Convict labor served to depress wages, curtail union activity, organizing, and strikes. These workers could also be worked practically to death and easily replaced. Progressive reformers, socialist party leaders, and United Mine Workers District 20 would wage an unrelenting war against the convict lease system for years. Even the 1911 Banner Mine explosion that killed 123 African-American prisoners couldn't outlaw the practice. Finally, newly elected Governor Bibb Graves yielded to the public outcry that condemned the practice as a relic of barbarism. He also ceded to workers' demands for jobs. Graves subsequently put prisoners to work on chain gangs building roads throughout the state, making Alabama the last state to abolish the convict lease system. And that is going to do it for this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. It's just a small sample of the programs aired recently on more than 200, count them, 200 labor radio shows and podcasts across the country and around the world. They're all part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, shows that focus on working people's issues and concerns. We've got links to all the network shows laborradionetwork.org. You can also find them. Use the hashtag laborradiopod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Patrick Dixon. I produce the show, and our social media guru is Mr. Harold Phillips. 
For the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this has been Chris Garlock urging you to stay active and, of course, stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show. See you next week.